just try and find your purpose and that's the way you'll get meaning in your life. Purpose Deep Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purposely with John O'Brien. John is the founder of Anthropy, described as the UK Davos, as a gathering of smart people, influential people, positively addressing the future of the United Kingdom. It's held in the Eden Project in Cornwall, and it will feature people like Sir Tim Smith, founder of the Eden Project, and Carol Homden, former guests of Purposely, along with Lord Dannett, Sadiq Khan, Lord Grossman, really strong lineup of people. We go back to the start of John's career as a former soldier in the British Army. He also worked for the now King of Britain for over a decade. John has had an incredible career and he shares all in this podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe, share with friends and enjoy the podcast. John O'Brien, a really warm welcome to Purposely Podcast. Thank you, Mark. Delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Great to have you as a guest. Uh, in preparation for the episode, I realized we had at least two things in common. Firstly, we now work or have worked in the past for the, the um, now King of England. Correct. And actually the Commonwealth. Wonderful. But secondly, you and I are both very aligned and we believe that purpose is fundamental to kind of human life, I guess, or human happiness. Tell me about your thoughts on purpose. Well, thank you, Mark. Yeah, I, well, purpose gets to the root of so many things, but um, perhaps it's best for me to explain a little bit when I first realized its significance. So I've done a great many different things in my life. I was a soul, you know, I was in the army for 10 years. Uh, I worked in banking. I ended up going into the interface between business and society. And it really goes back to the financial crisis that we had back in 2009, etc. And I was then working, as you alluded to, I was working then running many programs for the then Prince of Wales, the King. And I was slightly disillusioned at the way in which the banks and various financial institutions had behaved through that crisis and caused so much chaos. And the reason that impacted on what I was doing was because I was running the programs that uh, the then Prince was engaging with many of these institutions to try and have a positive impact on society. And I realized that actually this whole concept of ethical thinking and their engagement around key issues, be it the environment or their communities, was actually peripheral to the way in which they actually made decisions about the business. And also peripheral to, for example, the incentivization of the way in which people behaved. So, you know, if you were a trader, you know, you went all out to create profit at the cost of anything else. So actually what happened was all these things which many of us think are of value, such as environmental impacts and social community programs that banks and institutions had, however good they were, they weren't actually driving good business behavior. And so at that point in time, I decided that I would break from the 10 years I'd been working for the Prince, and I would go and try and create what might be described as going beyond CSR, corporate social responsibility, which all of that previous stuff was determined. So I created a business, and actually we didn't call it Purpose then, but in 2010 when I created the business, I knew that we had to try and get effectively ethical leadership back into the core of how a business was being run, rather than just reflected through peripheral programs. I 
described as being businesses with purpose and of purpose for generations. I mean, in the UK and I think globally, we had people like Anita Roddick at the Body Shop, you know, create an entire business based on her ethical values, which then embraced and encouraged the values of others in the high street. And we had people that have been very purposeful in their own businesses, like Richard Branson, etc. So often, the you know, in let's say more contemporary periods, you had entrepreneurs like that who created businesses with a passion and a purpose. But of course, even historically in the United Kingdom, you had companies like Cadbury's, for example, or you had uh, Lord Lever up in uh, Lever, the Lever Hume Brothers, who created a soap company, part of Unilever now. And when they created their businesses in Victorian times, equally Boots the Chemist, Jesse Boots in Victorian times, they obviously were going to try and create purpose, uh, sorry, trying to create profitable businesses. But they had a keen awareness of the social conditions of their time, particularly in respect of their workers. So actually what happened is that in, in the United Kingdom, you have these model villages built at Bourneville and you have model villages built um, where the soap factories were up in the north northwest near Liverpool. And, you know, this was about looking after their people. So at the very early stage, you had people with a purpose that wasn't just about making money in their businesses right back for over 100 years. And of course, now in modern times, you've got movements such as the B Corps movement that came out of America, and you've got a lot of younger entrepreneurs deciding very early on that they want to change the world for the better, but they're not going to become a politician because they'll be disillusioned with politics. They're not going to go and uh, necessarily join a campaigning organization or a nonprofit, primarily because they think of themselves as entrepreneurs. They think of themselves as people that want to create businesses. And also, they do want to create wealth for themselves. But I would say they want to create value in the broadest sense, so value for other stakeholders, which their business might impact on. So you've got a really you know, wonderfully vibrant drive of a new generation of purpose-led businesses and business leaders coming out. And I would just go on to one thing with respect to that. I'm a great believer. You're right. I've written several books on purpose in business. The first one called The Power of Purpose back in 2017 was a Forbes Top 15. It was number three at WH Smith's in the UK, so, you know, a, a verifiable bestseller. And I think it hit the moment where people were looking for something more, not just for their role in business, but actually I think purpose isn't the end of the destination. Purpose takes you towards something else, and we all seek this in life. And it's even more important than purpose, and that is meaning, the meaning of our lives. And if you can get a clarity of purpose, that will move you towards a sense that your life has had meaning. And in my own journey, so back in 2016, when I started writing the book, The Power of Purpose, people inevitably would talk about the corporate aspect of purpose. But I kept thinking there, well, you know, where we get the most enhanced performance is where a company or an organization's purpose is aligned with that of the individual. And I realized that actually it wasn't good enough for me to just talk about this without defining my own personal purpose. If you ask people about purpose, often you'll get something of a bit of a bland statement. Oh, I want to make the world a better place. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not very specific. Yeah. It doesn't actually give guidance to what you want to do or guidance to your jobs. So I went through a process, and it might be useful for your listeners. I went through a process of thinking, okay, if I look back on my working life, and I'm talking, I mean, I've been in full-time work now for 40 over 40 years so actually at that point i was probably 30 years of different roles and i looked at those jobs where i was most happy 
where actually I performed better. And most importantly, where the people around me, both my bosses or other colleagues, actually were most pleased and most content with how I was operating. And I realized there was a sort of commonality in the conditions and the roles that I was doing. So that was based with the army, that was with the Prince of Wales, those various things. And I realized the fundamental thing that I did, which most fed my desire in life, was that I helped other people do better. So if I was training soldiers to be the best they could be, or if I was helping young people through the Prince of Wales's programs to be better and get more opportunities. So I created my own clarity of purpose, which is that my purpose is to help people maximize their potential. And I always put on now for good. So actually, commercially, I run a group of agencies for Omnicom, the big marketing company, and I drive activity that helps companies and the leaders of those companies maximize the potential for good in the world. And through my own philanthropy, I try and create opportunities so that individuals can maximize their potential for good in the world. And that has helped me be very much more decisive in the last five or six years. It's allowed me to make more difficult decisions more easily because you know that if you're on purpose you know which way which way to go and if something's being asked of you and it's not on purpose then you can easily say no so i would just sort of i will pause there but i think the critical thing from all that i've just said there is you know the alignment of a personal purpose in an organization that has the same sort of direction means that you know your organization will perform better but you yourself will feel happier and if your purpose is about creating meaning in your life, then that, I think, is where you get the happiest of alignments, not just for yourself, but for everybody around you as well. And joined the British Army. When you joined, you went to Sandhurst School and you, what was your sense going into that? Did, did you want to do that personally? Did you feel like it was the only option, like starting out? What was the sort of thought process behind it? So firstly, just so that your readers are aware, Sandhurst is not a school. Sandhurst is the equivalent of West Point in America. It's the military academy for Britain and the Commonwealth often for training their officers. So it's a decision you make. It's not a decision made for you. Uh, clearly, you have to get through you know, lots of conditions to actually be able to be given a place. But no, I was originally, I went to work from school. I didn't go to university. I went from school to work in a bank. I spent almost four years working in a retail bank, which was fine. It was a good job. This was the early 1980s. But in retrospect, I can tell that now I realize it didn't have a great sense of purpose to me. I wouldn't have used that language then, but I, I can look back now and know it was a good job. It was well paid. I was on a fast track on management. It all looked pretty rosy. Everybody thought, this is great. John's got a fantastic job. But it just didn't feed the soul. It might have fed the pay packet, but it didn't feed the soul. And so I had spent a couple of years as a reservist. I trained in what was known as the Territorial Army and realized I was enjoying my weekends sort of soldiering in that way. So I thought, why don't I try it as a regular army? So I chose to go, was obviously went through the selection process and was very fortunate to go to Sandhurst. And the thing about Sandhurst, and I was an infantry officer, was that it, it helps define, or rather it helps identify the sort of character traits that certain officers need in certain parts of the army. And it made a, you know, it really helped in terms of what I could do as an infantry officer, what I could do as an infantry officer was absolutely a great skill set when I came out 10 years later. During that period, what I had was absolute clarity of purpose. So if you think about it, 
everybody that I served with had the same sort of same um, sense of purpose. We, we had a job to do that everybody was unified in. We had an incredible culture that we were in, just culture that went back 300 years, built up over 300 years of British Army history. And we also had great reliance on each other and a confidence in each other's skills. And that was a very purposeful organization, probably the most purposeful organization I've ever been in. But that also equipped me with extraordinary abilities to become more purposeful when I came out of the army in the early 1990s. And did you find yourself in really challenging positions? And and did it make you a leader or did you already have sort of leadership tendencies? I guess, um, (laughs) well, I will share one thing. When I was growing up as a little boy, I used to actually have a sort of, we might call it a gang, but in our street, we had a bunch of boys the same age. And, um, and I actually do remember lining them up and drilling them <laughs> just as a boy. And my nickname in the family was was the general. I was known as General Johnny. <laughs> Brilliant. But I never became a general. But I suppose there might have been some early traits of what you would describe as leadership, but not not in the way that you see today with young people who suddenly, you know, get up and start campaigning about environment at the age of 15 or something and start getting on stages and championing things whatever there was not that in my day i mean frankly the world was a different place growing up in the 60s and 70s but there was i suppose a, a perhaps a an ability there or a willingness there to step forward and take a lead and what the army does and it did was give you a set of skills it gives you the confidence but then of course you know you are launched into you know operational circumstances where suddenly at a very young age you get an enormous amount of responsibility so at the age of 21 i found myself commanding troops in an operational theater with soldiers that were older than me who had been in and on operations before me but they still looked to me as the officer and looked to me for the lead and that is a that is a maturing process in its own right when things got really tasty and and real conflict situations and and your sort of life flashed before you what what how did john o'brien react like did you find that you stayed calm like did you shut down did you have to draw on every sort of part of your being to get through it well the first time i mean i have to say i I think uh in my experience my life you know when those circumstances happened life didn't flash before me you know i think that's a cliche what happened was that there was a moment of stark awareness where you realize that everybody's looking at you for a decision and then what happens is that your training kicks in so one of the one of the things that people who haven't served don't quite appreciate is that you know almost every day when you're not on operations you are training and training and training again either that is fitness training or tactical training or weapons training or whatever and the reason that that is and it's a bit like drilling on the parade ground is that actually, you know, when a circumstance happens, you don't have time to think about things. You need things to kick in immediately and instantly. The very first time I came under gunfire, I won't explain the exact circumstances, but my men and I were, were crossing an area and somebody opened up with a machine gun on us. What was interesting to me, and, and I was very fresh-faced then, so in the lead-up to that operation, we had had probably six months training And my sergeant, who was significantly older than me and had been on operations before, throughout the training, very realistic training that we were going through, I would sort of instinctively look to him for guidance. And he would say, you know, he whispered, go left, so go over there or do this. And 
you know, in typical format, you know, you learn as a young officer so much from your sergeant who's more experienced. And so throughout the training, I was sort of leaning on his experience in those training, you know, activities. But when we came under fire on this on this patrol, and he was quite close to me, we all hit the, the deck into a sort of ditch thing. And I instinctively looked towards him. And he looked straight back at me, and he knew exactly what I was going to say. And I didn't say anything. I was just looking at him. And he just shouted over. <laughs> and uh, it's used, well, I'm not going to use explosives, but he said, sir, this is, this is when you earn your effing money. <laughs> and I learned in that instant that actually, as the ledge sort of came down, I had no one else to look at now. You know, both he and the rest of the men working for me to do what my job was and earn my money, which was take a leadership role. So instinctively then, of course, the training kicked in. You know, I issued the orders. We won the firefight, as it's known. We circled in a particular way, and, and that was the end of that first operation. And I can tell you now, at no point did my life flash <laughs> in front of me. It was instantly, what the heck am I doing? Okay, right, I'm the one to make a decision, right, let's do it, because if I don't make a decision now, people are going to die. Yeah, yeah. So so I think, you know, that's the reality, but critical to this is that your behaviour becomes instinctive, and I think there's a lesson there in that, you know, if you have to think about what's right or wrong, if you have to sort of think, hmm, should I do this because nobody's looking or something like that, then frankly, you know, you're, you, you haven't got that... You haven't got that clarity of purpose, but more importantly, you haven't got the ethics and you haven't got the sort of instinctive knowledge of your own behavior. Mm. And, and that, I think, is how you become successful in life. And so you're there with the British Army from the mid-80s to the mid-90s, and you decide to leave. Was that a difficult decision? What was behind that decision? Well, sadly, it wasn't my decision. So people will realize but actually, at the late 1980s, we won the Cold War. So when the Iron Curtain came down, the British Army undertook a review and decided that it needed 47,000 less men than it had. So I was a career officer. I was a captain by that stage. I had had a number of key high-profile roles. I was destined to go further and, you know, on a track towards command. And... 40-odd thousand of us were made redundant over a period of three years, and it was a real blow. It was a real shock. I'd expected to carry on serving till I was probably 40, and here I was at 30. And so it was forced upon me. And to be perfectly frank, the day that I received my papers, I went back to my army house and waited for my wife to come back from, from work. But at that moment, and I don't mind admitting, I sat on the stairs and burst into tears because... You know, being something like the British Army, it's not just a job, it's your entire vacation, your social life is in the army, you live with your fellow army officers in a group of houses, you move every two years, your wives know each other, your godchild, you know, your godparents, etc. to each other, you go on holiday, it's an entire world in its own right. And what I realised at that moment was that not only was you know, I was going to lose a home. I was going to lose my friends in that way. I'd lost my role. Most importantly, I'd lost my sense of identity. So in, in Britain, you know, if I went to a, an event or a party or something like that at that time and people said, oh, what do you do, John? And I, and I said, well, I'm an army officer. 
that was both exceptional, but I have to say was you know pretty highly respected. So people, you know, that was a status, that was something that was so inherent to my identity. And suddenly it wasn't therefore just the fact I'd lost a job, I'd lost my identity. So it, it, that was a bit of a shock. And I think I wasn't alone in that way. And some people came out of the army more easily and more capable of making change happen. Others, and some others had been in even longer for me. That was a step too far and it caused great problems for them, sadly. But I realized fairly shortly on that I just now had a new operation that I had to do, which was to find a new job yeah. and find a new role in life. And that loss of identity, like, how long did it kind of take you to pick yourself up off the floor and, and go again? Like, do you remember, was it months or? Well, I mean, you know, to be perfectly frank, you know, I mean, obviously when my wife got home, we had a big conversation and it was all pretty upsetting, all of it. And you, you also have to bear in mind that because we used to move in the army every two years, you know, your wife, my wife's a professional, you know, she also had to, had been moving for two years and all this and the other. So the whole thing, you know, suddenly she was as worried as I was, where are we going to live? You know, we've got to leave this house in six months' time, things like that. But also the next day I had to go back into the office and carry on soldiering. So, you know, there's no time for, there's no real time for sort of feeling sorry for oneself because literally the next day, somewhat ironically, I had to go back into the office, into the regiment and start coping with the fallout for all the soldiers that had been made redundant. You know, so all the soldiers, of course, that were being given the same news still looked to their officers for advice, even if the officers are in the same position. So you just had to crack on with it. But what I probably after a few weeks, I thought, right, okay, how do I go about this? What do I do? What am I going to do? What are the priorities? And so it wasn't long before I was, you know, getting out there trying to, at the same time as soldiering, trying to, you know, obviously apply for jobs and things of that kind. It took a long time for the military to sort of the military skin to be shed, so to speak. And most, I mean, my, my family and people think, John, I'm, you know, I'm still military, I suppose, in comparison to many. You can't really get rid of that experience. Yeah. Um, and I still look at land in a different way. You know, I look at land tactically if I'm walking across it. You know, I use language that is military and things like that. But, you know, I realized that there's no, look, there's no point looking back. I'm not a great one for looking back. I mean, I, I, I can reminisce like anybody and I enjoy it in one way, but I don't hanker for things in the past. There's no point. Mm. You have to look forward. So I had to find that new role. And, uh, you know, I was very fortunate to get a set of opportunities that, that have been very successful for me. Do you think if they hadn't made that decision to shed those amount of soldiers and, and you were part of that, do you think you would have stayed? You would have done another 10 years? I would have stayed, but actually, oh, yes, definitely. And I would have retired as a lieutenant colonel and I'd be sitting in a little village with my terrier and not doing a great deal. And so actually, although it was deeply upsetting at the time, within a few years, I realized it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. And the reason for that is because I had relatives and friends in the army who stayed on for longer. And the longer you were in, the harder the transition. And so there are two aspects. Of course, you don't miss what you've never had. So if you come out and you just sort of retire to a village and you know become a retired colonel, that's absolutely fine. There's no issue. There's no problem with that. But I know for a fact that having come out when I did at 30, instead of coming out when I was 40, I was able to have much more enriching life over, over the last 20-odd years, or 30 years now, 
I would never have been able to work with the prince. I would never have, you know, traveled and represented his interests around the world. You know, I wouldn't have done half the things that I've done, you know, since. So actually, it was difficult at the time, but the best thing that could have happened actually in the longer term. Yeah. And do you think like pain and a bit of suffering actually can, you know, be a good thing? Like on reflection, it can be bad as well, but could it be a good thing? Uh, I, I wouldn't describe it as I, I wouldn't describe it as pain, and of course, I, in a way, I wouldn't say we were suffering. But what you need sometimes to be is there's a great risk in life that you become too comfortable, and so if you become too comfortable personally in your role in your conditions, etc., then I think one of the risks is that you think everybody's got the same level of comfort, or you just become impervious to what else is happening in the world. So one would never wish harm on anybody. One would never wish people to be made unemployed or you know lose their homes and things like that. But you know, in my experience, if you listen to so many people who've gone on to do great things, there have been moments in their time that sometimes have been somewhat tragic and things like that. Mm. And I'm sure when you've talked to people on your podcast, you'll interview people who perhaps lost a parent or lost a loved one or a child or you know had some terrible tragedy happen, which made made them sort of have to think again about how they progress through life. So one doesn't wish it on people, but undoubtedly we are, our characters, etc., shaped by our experiences. And sometimes for the good of oneself and the good of the people around you, some of these experiences sometimes need to be challenging. You found yourself back in looking for work and you probably had a strong sense of what you didn't want to do, which is maybe go back to finance, but you ended up in, in Liverpool. Uh, yeah. <laughs> tell us about how that opportunity came about and what you did in Liverpool. Well, you are absolutely right about things. So what happened when, when a lot of young captains like I you know, came out and even at previous times when people were coming to the end of their time as a captain, they'd often flood towards London and the city and they'd go into banking and things like that. But I knew I didn't want to go into that world. So actually, I just decided with my wife that we would get a job that I could effectively land into civilian life. It was like taking a parachute and landing into another world. And the reason that a job in Liverpool was was uh, attractive was that it allowed us to live in Chester. I mean, obviously, to some of your listeners, they won't be familiar with the geography, but that was not far from where both my wife and I grew up. And we were thinking of starting a family, and we thought, well, let's be close to parents if we can. Um, and that job came about actually through a recruitment organization that was specifically designed to offer jobs to retiring or leaving army officers. And so basically, you could almost call it an old tie network or whatever, but essentially, previous army officers who had been who had been out in civilian life, when they were looking for people for jobs, sometimes would advertise through this network. And then, of course, people would go and apply. And I was fortunate to, there was a medical research organization at Liverpool University. They were looking for a development director. Uh, on their board was uh, a retired colonel. And so whilst they were advertising elsewhere, they also advertised into this network. And I was fortunate to go and get the interview and get the job. Mm. And that put me into, uh, and, and that was the first jump, which then allowed me to test my military skills into the civilian life. Fortunately, they turned out to be you know, equally useful. So development, so fundraising, finding resources, uh, which, you know, military skills. Yeah, I didn't quite realize how much <laughs> fundraising was fun. Yeah. I know. <laughs> well, I'll tell you very simply. I mean, I, I must admit, I didn't probably read the job description particularly accurately, or they hit it rather well, but I didn't quite appreciate how much focus was on raising money. 
until I got there. But yeah, that was exactly what it was. But in essence, I realized that, I mean, as an infantry officer, you're trained to do one thing, essentially, which is to go into an unknown situation, often chaotic, often dangerous. But put that to one side, you go into the unknown and you formulate a plan. You have to then be able to communicate that plan to people, motivate them, and then lead them in that direction. Now, that is a basic skill set. And there is a military process called a military appreciation, which has a set of stages instinctively, which I go through. That has served me in every job I've ever had. But the beauty of going into the role that I first had in Liverpool was that essentially I had to think, this is what we're trying to raise the money for. So let's see what the plan is. So I created the plan. I then had to you know, craft the communication of that plan. And I had to get that plan in front of people who actually could be engaged and motivated to support it. And I found that I was good at that. So I could come up with something, I could communicate it to the right audience, and I frankly could get them to give me the money to make that thing happen. So I did that for four or five years, and I was made the chief executive of that organization. And that was the basis of me appreciating the transferability of those skills. Mm. And that took you on a journey to the to business of the community and working for then HRH, uh, Prince of Wales. And how did that opportunity fall in your lap? Was that um, sort of, was it uh, tapping on the shoulder? John O'Brien, come and work for us? Or? No, 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 no. I mean, to be honest, I don't think, uh, I mean, some things may have fallen in my lap, but I don't want people to think this is easy. I mean, you know, things struggle. So I didn't go directly there. I was running the work in Liverpool, and then there was a government initiative which was trying to bring non-public sector people into local government, so city councils. And I went into a city council in the north of England to do a particular sort of job there. I have to say, it was the worst job I've ever done. And And again, when I look back over the you know, frankly, there was a lack of sense of purpose, which seems strange really in the public sector, but it didn't resonate with me. Um, I was ill-fitting. I'm sure I didn't get along, well, I didn't really get along with many of my colleagues. I'm sure my colleagues thought I was awful. You know, it was an unhappy time for me, and I think it was probably unhappy for people around me, because there was a mismatch between my natural characteristics of leadership and, you know, getting things happen, and the somewhat more process-driven, static sort of way in which a a city authority at those times was working. So I I did that, and I struggled on for for, for what was two years, but I was desperately unhappy and knew that I needed to move off. And it so happened that I saw a job advertised for business in the community, which, again, for your listeners, was the Prince of Wales's major engagement programme for business. And I had, when I'd been at Liverpool, I'd actually been on the receiving end of some of the interaction with business in the community. So I knew that it was a very powerful organisation. I applied for the role and I was very fortunate to get it. But one thing that I also know, though, and this is, again, you know, we talk about experiences and circumstances. My ability to get the job with business in the community was enhanced by the experience that I'd had at Chester Sea Council because of the responsibilities I had there around regeneration projects and things of that kind. So ironically, if I hadn't had what was really quite awful experience personally of those two years at the city council, I would have been less qualified to get the job of business in the community. Mm. And so, you know, things may be tough at a particular time, but when you look back, you then can often realise there's been a value in that experience. But that was, so I applied, uh, you know, it was quite a torturous process. I think there were three interviews, you know, there's 
you know, a lot of things going on. And I was able to secure that role, the first role that I had running the Northwest of England. And I found that it was an organ, it was a regional team that was actually failing. Some of the people were pretty, frankly, pretty useless, were really funded by major corporates, funding programs. Many of them were leaving because they were disenchanted with the idea. So we were losing income. People were not very well motivated, and it really needed a big shake-up. And the one advantage of, of that, of course, if you go in and find, and, and my then boss, you know, said, There's, you know, this is the failing region out of nine regions in the UK, see what you can do. Well, of course, the advantage of that is that basically the only way is up. Yeah. So within, you know, by changing some of the people, by getting people communicating, motivated, etc., we were able to turn that region around within a, a couple of years, and it became the most successful region in the whole of the UK. So, and then that meant that I was asked to go to London to run the Prince of Wales's programme. So, you know, again, sometimes you can land yourself in what appears to be really dire circumstances, which I did when I joined the ITC, but then find, of course, that with the right combination of a bit of luck and a plan and good people, you know, you can, you can make real change happen. It looked to me having close association with it, but like a, a pretty powerful move using, you know, the Prince of Wales, HRH's Amana's brand to encourage businesses to take more or give more to their communities. And I guess, did you, did you sense that a lot of the businesses were actually doing it for the brand association, not necessarily because they really cared what was happening on their doorstep or did that evolve over the time? Because, you know, you're there for, a decade. What did you think about the motivation of organisations and, and their membership of BITC? Yes. So, yeah, source. So, sometimes, I mean, motivation varies from person to person, company to company. We genuinely had companies who'd been in there a long time, you know, founder members of business in the community, some of the great giant companies of the UK who'd been there for, for 20 years already. And they're Undoubtedly, CEOs came and went, but the beauty of having Prince of Wales as the patron, you know, as his charity, was that he was always there. And so, yes, of course, it was attractive for people to be asked to go and accompany him on a trip or to go and visit him at Clarence House or whatever. But I think genuinely we had a great movement, the CSR movement. I mean, I know I've said CSR is dead and we need to get to purposeful stuff, but actually, of course, everything is about an evolution. So when I joined in 2000, or back end of 1999, we didn't even talk about CSR. It was called community, it was called corporate community involvement, which was basically getting companies to go and do volunteering in their communities and things like that. And then as the agenda developed, it became corporate social responsibility and people started to think about the environment. They started to thinking about the way in which they treated their workplace and their suppliers. And, and then we had sustainability come in and then it's become purpose. Everything's an evolution. And at any point in time, you've got companies at different points on that evolution. So you've got sophisticated companies that are leading the charge and leading the agenda and actually genuinely are in BITC, or they were then, to share that knowledge and have knowledge shared with them so they can be a better business in society. And then you've got other businesses which were sort of, you could say, were lagging behind because they would just join the journey later on who to be honest yes often it was the fact that the ca ceo or whatever felt it was really exciting to go on a trip with the prince of wales and and get into that circle of business 
but often it was an attraction also to be mixing with other significant business leaders as well. Yeah. So undoubtedly there was the convening power and the authority of the Prince of Wales. Motivations will always change, but everybody was heading in the same direction, even if they were at different stages of their uh, sophistication, if I call it that. Yeah, and one of the initiatives I remember, because I was at the Prince's Trust, as discussed, but seeing as believing and, and really connecting Britain up and enabling opportunities for people to you know, really see causes for themselves and, and social issues. And that was something you're involved in? Yeah, so the Prince's Seeing is Believing program, you know, it's, it's interesting that you from obviously another organisation, you know, knew of that because it was undoubtedly the most powerful motivating initiative in driving change. And it was one of the Prince's programmes that I ran within the portfolio of his interests. But essentially for your listeners, what would happen is that I would provide to the Prince a list of names that we felt who were leading big businesses, etc. we felt should go with him, some, often with him, sometimes not, but go with him or, or on his behalf to look at key social issues in our towns and cities and rural communities. So a group of 10 to 12 business leaders would go for a day and they would visit things like schools or drug rehab centres or homeless hostels or hill farms or fishing communities. And they would look and try and understand aspects of society often related to their business, which they would never otherwise go and see. So they'd go and visit schools and then think about actually the gap between a school leaver getting into the employment you know, process and things of this kind. Or if they were running a supermarket, we'd take them out to a hill farm where they would then suddenly for the first time realize that a farm, um, you know, providing them with you know, milk or, or some stock or something, you know, was supporting three families and things of this kind. And then they would go back to one of the prince's homes and they would report back to him. But most importantly, the whole point of seeing his believing was that those business leaders would get together and say, actually, this is either going to change the way in which we do things in our own business, or we are going to collectively come together to change things in society. So we'll create an initiative that tries to mentor the homeless off the streets, or we will change the way in which we source our milk so that it provides a fairer price or something of that kind. Um, that was undoubtedly the way in which a great many corporate initiatives in the UK for public good were created by taking people who happened to be leading big businesses and introduce them, get them to sit down and talk to people who were in entirely different circumstances beyond their normal world. A very powerful programme. And so 2010, you've got to go and walk into um, HRH's office or announce them you're leaving. Is that how it played out? Like just uh, your good friends, I imagine, by it that did, stage? Actually. It sounds to me like you sort of know my story before I've told it, but I did, yeah. So I had a, well, I mean, I was very fortunate to say I'd sort of travelled on the Royal Train and they sort of had dinner with the Prince then and wake up and have breakfast and you talk about what you've seen as you go around the country. And I, I'd represented his interests in the Muslim world, covering about 20 countries, and I'd launched initiatives in Pakistan and Canada and various things like that. So I was very fortunate to be one of those sort of people that he'd phone up when he'd heard of something and see, basically, what can I do? What can we do? So over that period, I'd created a lot of different initiatives in his name. So when I went in, I explained in 2010 that I would be leaving by the end of the year. And... You know, I was very fortunate that he decided, and I explained I was going to set up my own business to try and advise people on either their philanthropy, if they were high net worth individuals, or corporates on going beyond CSR, and also nonprofits on being better able to position themselves to get support from, from the other two. 
And so he very kindly, well, I mean, it, it was quite unusual. I, I hadn't expected it, but got a little bit upset about the fact that I was going to be going, which I was totally surprised by. But I think just, again, is, a, is an illustrative insight into, you know, how much he cares about people generally, not just not necessarily me, but specifically, but generally. And so he asked to sort of understand better what I was doing. And when I explained, he said, well, I'd like to be your first client. So, I mean, essentially what happened was he then continued to, uh, I continued to work with him, albeit in a different capacity, in a different role, to help activate some of the things which perhaps his organization was less able to be as nimble or as innovative in order to do. So by the end of 2010, I mean, it's sad that it's happened again this year. We had terrible floods in Pakistan. He phoned me up one day and said, John, I'm really concerned about the people of Pakistan. Do you think there's anything I can do? So within, I think, three weeks, I got on a plane, took a whole load of business leaders on a scene as believing that we just talked about, but into the flood regions of Pakistan, up into the Northern Territories, up towards the Afghan border, etc. Saw the horrendous stuff, came back to London, got these business leaders from the, well, the, from the UK and the Middle East, to meet with the prince at Clarence House and together determined to create a Pakistan recovery fund. Prince held a dinner, we raised a million pounds. And, you know, that that's the sort of typical project that I did with him over the over then seven years, where, you know, perhaps the organizations that he had were not geared up to react in that mm. way, but I was able to perhaps do a little bit to, uh, to help in that way. You know, I don't know if everyone's aware of how active, how much uh, he cared, uh, still does. And, um, you know, haven't been a little, not as close as you, but close enough. I remember one story, we had some young people taken to Highgrove and he was doing some dry stone walling and yeah. the young people, he encouraged them to get involved and take part. And then at the end, there wasn't enough seats for everyone in the, in the trucks going back up to the house. Yeah. And um, we, we had HRH running behind them forfeiting his seat on the <laughs> in the truck and running up, which, you know, didn't didn't feel like a very prince thing to do, but absolutely made my day to see him doing that. And um because he didn't want to put the kids out right. He didn't want to single one child out to but yeah, someone you respect hugely? Well it's leader it's leadership, you know. Well it's leadership, isn't it? I mean that's that's essentially what it is. I mean that's just a, a very small illustration of leadership. Yeah, I mean I, I couldn't work you know, it was a great privilege to do what I did for him. I was one of many people who obviously, like yourself, had been in those circles and had been able to see him not just sort of in front of the crowds and in front of the camera, but privately. And in that regard, you know, his care and compassion, his concern for others, his frustration that, you know, people have different conditions that aren't necessarily the best conditions for their life prospects, etc., and of course, overriding even all of that, his concern around the planet and the environment that we are at risk of completely destroying has been the motivating you know, factor in his life. And, you know, that is an inspiration. And I have no doubt that anything that I've been able to achieve since then, for example, my own big project is really based upon the experiences and the uh, illustration of how one can make things happen that have come from him and other colleagues around him. So, uh, mm. I mean, you you heard me there talk about the army. The two most significant periods of my time were the ten years in the army and the ten years working for the prince's interests, and then the seven years as a sort of special representative 
you know, after that. I mean, they've, they've been incredibly enriching experiences. And leaving there, and then, as you said, uh, but staying with one foot back in the camp and, and still working with the prince and, and um, his efforts, you very much found yourself in that sort of business for good world and that sort of bridge between doing good with the resources of business, advising others, encouraging others, and doing that for yourself. But, you know, like a number of different non-exec direct positions for the look of it from, from what I've seen. All that time, having a clear idea of, of and, and sort of happiness with what you're doing and how you're doing it, or a sense that there's something missing? Or I think, well, I mean, firstly, I built my own business and I ran that business to 2017. And then because purpose, you know, I'd, I'd written the bestseller, people, more people were talking about purpose. I'd helped craft the thinking of many business leaders in the UK particularly. So then in 2017, various other companies started looking at my own little business and myself because their own clients were asking them for their advice. So I sold my business and I moved into Omnicom, which is the big global marketing and advertising consortium based out of America to drive forward their ethical purpose sort of um, practices. And the 100 agency, which I now co-lead, is basically a group of nine agencies and the way in which we work with clients to help realize their own potential around their purpose, the communication both internally and externally. But during all that period of time, uh, certainly with my own agency, uh, I I tried to play an active role on the boards of various charities as an ambassador and patron of others. And also there were times when I saw things which needed, or didn't need necessarily, but I saw opportunities for social good. So in 2012, we had the Queen's Jubilee, uh, the late Queen's Jubilee, and came up with this campaign idea to recognize her then 60 years of public service by encouraging people to give 60 minutes of public service in volunteering. And I created a website, I created a campaign. This was my own philanthropy called The Jubilee Hour, and just simply campaigned to get people to give an hour to their neighbor or volunteer an hour to a local community group or something of that kind. Because I thought, you know, let's turn a celebration into a reflection on that service and let's see if we can do some good. And the UK, and it went really quite big. So by the end of the period of four or five months, we'd had 2.7 million people volunteer an hour. And the UK government recognised it as the largest mass mobilisation of volunteers since World War II. What was interesting, given where you're based, was that I had 40,000 volunteers in New Zealand registered. Wonderful. So it wasn't just in the UK, it went around the world. Yeah, and and that was fantastic. And that was just a sort of time-limited you know, initiative to, to get some good in the world. And then as a result of that, the government, the UK government, were looking at celebrating the First World War centenary from well, 2014 to 2018. And there was a whole series of activities in the UK, and they asked if I could do something similar for that. So I found a co-founder, and we created something called Remember World War One, which was essentially to provide volunteers for the various initiatives being placed around the UK. And we mobilised in a different way about 380,000 volunteers to participate in and support people putting on community efforts around the country. So I've tried to remain active and try and be a positive force outside my business. But essentially, you know, I do 
like to <laughs> sort of go across boundaries and try and tie things together, etc., which is why I now created this very big gathering that's happening next month, which combines all that experience and it brings together both business and nonprofits, you know. So we've all been hit by COVID in different ways, but at the end of the first year of COVID, I was very concerned about the economic and environmental impacts on the UK. I was very conscious that we have lots of global gatherings like the Davos Gathering or United Nations Weeks or COP, you know, on the climate change. But I thought, actually, this country needs a national forum where we get leaders together to try and build back better post-COVID. And so it's taken a little while to get off the ground, but it's um, I decided to hold it at the world-renowned Eden Project in Cornwall, which is a tremendous environmental project. Uh, I decided to crowdsource the agenda with over 200 organizations working for 12 months to create a lot of content that's now seen as the largest crowdsourced agenda ever undertaken in the UK. And what we've got is 160 sessions, we've got 300 speakers, we've got 14 stages happening from the 2nd to the 4th of November. And the whole aim of this is to try and help Britain get a new vision for where it wants to go. And I've posed four questions. What is the quality of life we want in Britain for the next 30 years, so for the next generation? What is the qualities of place, both our built and natural environments? What are the qualities of a good economy and how business behaves? And then finally, because it isn't designed to be Little Britain, it's what are the qualities we as a nation share globally to work on shared issues such as climate change and poverty? And I've been, you know, really, you know, delighted that so many organisations and so many people are coming together and going to meet down there to try and take this forward. So from having the idea and then thinking up a name, and a sort of antidote to all the negativity that was all going on, all the fear that existed around COVID. What were the next steps? How long did the idea percolate in your head? And then when did you take action? Like, what did it look like? Yeah, I mean, I, I know some people ask me this all the time, but to me, it's just so formulaic because I've done it so often before. So I used to do this for the Prince's Charities and Concerns. I did it with the programs I just mentioned, GVR, whatever. There is a sort of methodology. We're fundamental to this. And one thing I think people sometimes get wrong is that if you've got an idea like this, which is about mobilizing the nation or mobilizing a community for good or something like that, that you've got to share the idea. Now, I know that sounds a little bit mad, but often people think, oh, I've got this great idea of doing something. I daren't share it with anybody until I've raised the money. I daren't share it with anybody until I've got this done, this done, because somebody will steal it and take it away. That's entirely the wrong attitude. That will not happen. So if you've got an idea and you want to make it happen, you've got to start talking to people about it. And you talk to people and share it with people that you think can be equally motivated by that idea. And once you've got those allies in place, then you can start to grow it out from that way. And it becomes what I call a set of dominoes. So if you start to get those dominoes knocking into place, then you build the momentum. And when you've got, for example, 20 people committed, then stick them on a slide deck and say, look, these it's not just me and my idea. These 20 people who happen to be CEOs of these organizations or those organizations, we're all going to try and make this happen together. I mean, this is costing just under a million pounds to put on. And I've had to get a whole load of in-kind support to make it happen. But fundamentally, when you get down to it, you need cash to pay for certain things. And, you know, over the last four months, I've had to go out and raise over £600,000 in cash to make this happen, as well as all the other support, you know, in practical kind. Has that been hard to get that? Yeah, I mean, it hasn't always, it hasn't been quite as easy. Well, let me put it this way. People 
say to me they're pretty amazed that for something that's never been done before in the economic circumstances that we've got in the UK at the moment, they're pretty amazed that that I've been able to do it. But I've done it again with the help of so many tremendous individuals. This isn't just me. I mean, people needed to be willing to share contacts with me, put me in touch with people. I squeezed the pips on my own black book a long time ago, you know, through got everything out, you know. Um, so now, you know, having got everything that I could out of my contacts, I need people to open their own up and say, look, you know, this isn't a hard sell. You're either, you know, you either believe in this and you can help us or, you know, you can't. It's no issue. There's no concern. But you've got to share the idea and you've got to motivate people to dream the same dream that you've got. If people were resistant to anthropy, what was the re- what were they resisting on? Like, what was what did they say to you? To be honest, the numbers of people who really said no, I don't like this idea, very very small. And I'm not going to mention names. But what's interesting to me is that they are universally people who are in positions of power. So very early on, when I approached certain people, members of the House of Lords, for example, their attitude was, "We've got plenty of forums to debate things." I don't like Davos. You're trying to create a UK Davos. And I think, sadly, even though I I admire them and like them as people, I think they're just too comfortable. It goes back to what I said before. You know, know, there are people in positions of high authority who are too comfortable, too well off. They've got all the ability to have conversations with others and make change happen and influence things, but sadly didn't see the opportunity to do with others. Now, that's not all, because I have got members of the House of Lords and other parliamentarians and people coming down, which is great. But consistently, the only people that said, I'm not really bothered in this, are the people that have got everything that they need to fulfill their own wishes in terms of influencing the agenda in this country. And I'm afraid, you know, actually, that's just not good enough. And you don't want it to be political, and you want it to be focused on action and legacy? Like, this has got a make an impact right well what well it has to make an impact but one of the things that i've also been concerned not just in covid was that the sort of way in which our national discourse has become so negative so in the media everything's a negative story on social media people hurl insults at each other people go around identifying themselves against things rather than for things people decide to damn others simply because they may have voted one way one decision some years ago that's not how you build an ongoing, strong, you know, society. That's how you fracture it even worse. And so I was determined that we would have politicians present, but it would not be political. They could come and they could share their views on the future of Britain in the same way that the rest of us are. But one of the things that I'm really insisting on is that it's got to be where people can come and talk, but they've got to be prepared to listen. You know, this is actually about creating a new space where we leave behind um, not just that negativity, but also leave behind the ego and leave behind the silo. You know, this is about bringing people together on some big, big questions, starting with that, which is what is the quality of life we want in Britain for the next generation? We have inherited the most extraordinary country. There's rights and wrongs in our history, but it is a beautiful part of the world. We have wonderful countryside. We have incredibly historic and vibrant cities where most of our people live side by side with great diversity and mutual respect and and that. We have amazing universities, engineers, technicians. We have 
world-renowned artists and performers and musicians, etc. So we have an extraordinary inheritance as a nation. But what are we actually passing on? And that's the critical thing. If we pass on a fractured, unhappy, aggressive country, then, you know, we have failed those that have come before us. And I, you know, this is my, basically, this is my last sort of firing shot to try and create something that can build out from there with a much more positive attitude about how we go forward. Wonderful. John O'Brien, massive thank you for joining me on Purposely. With only, it feels like we're, we're only a few weeks away from Anthropy Live at the Eden Project. I wish you all the very best for that. And um, I hope you it's not too stressful over the next few weeks and um, you get it over the line. Thanks, Mark. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. And you know, to anybody listening, just try and find your purpose. And that's the way you'll get meaning in your life. But thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.